room in hell. The dead will walk there. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. Thanks for tuning in to Body Count, the podcast for theblackesteyes.com. My name is Philip. On the line with me is Scott and Danny. And this is a place where we try to have intelligent conversation about horror movies. And we are very, very glad that you have joined us for this episode. Guys, before we jump into the movie, it's probably a good idea to check in on each other and just see how we're doing during this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Danny, you live in eastern Kentucky. Uh, how's the community there? How are people uh, coming together? And how's your family? Is, is everything okay? Yeah, everyone, everyone in my family is safe and healthy. Uh, I think people have been handling it pretty well as far as the social distancing and not going out when you don't need to go out. Uh, it's kind of a ghost town anytime I come to the office to get work done. And uh, I, it, it's been all right. It's very weird not being able to, you know, host board game nights at the college and all the stuff I do. I'm, I'm more of the extrovert. So uh, this has not been the best time for me personally, but, uh, but I think everyone's handling it pretty well. And at least so far, everyone's healthy in this area. We, we don't have any cases or any real hospital issues. Yeah, good. And on the other side of the country in California is where our friend Scott is. Scott, what's life look like over there? So I'm in Irvine, California, which is Orange County, and there are some infections here in Irvine. And of course, Southern California in general has had quite a few, or the state of California has had quite a few. Um, weather's beautiful. It's kind of nice to, to be home every day, but it's also making me stir crazy. I really miss, so I'm a teacher and I really miss the interaction with the college students. And I mean, we do it online, but it, it, you know, it's not the same as being there in person. Yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm happiest when I'm in front of the class lecturing, uh, leading discussion. And it's, it's been really rough. Well, I obviously as a pastor, uh, being in front of people, being with people, embracing people, it's, what I do, but I think what people are discovering is that no matter what a walk of life you're in, no matter what your occupation is, even if you don't necessarily consider it to be first and foremost a people-oriented, you recognize uh, what the impact of this social distancing has on everyone. Everyone is feeling it to some degree or another, and uh, I think it really speaks volumes as to how important contact with one another is. Well, uh, we're here to talk about horror movies, though, so. Let's do that, and we're going to jump into one that is absolutely unbelievable. So let's jump into our Creature Feature segment. They wiggle and they dance. Today we're going to be talking about a film called Midsummer, a 2019 film directed by Ari Aster, and it is uh, his second feature film. We've already talked about uh, his first film, which was Hereditary, uh, which we all very much liked. And I think all of us have a, a pretty strong reaction to Midsummer as well. Now, Scott, as I understand it, you, Ross, you watched the entire thing just earlier today. It's probably pretty fresh on your mind. So if you don't mind, uh, just very briefly, not super detailed or anything, but could you just give us a real quick run through of the basic plot of Midsummer, and then we can talk about some of those details. Yeah, sure. So I'd seen it uh, maybe a couple of months ago for the first time. And since, you know, I had some time this afternoon and I knew we were going to podcast, I went ahead and watched it again. So, yeah, it's real fresh in my mind. So Midsummer basically is told from the point of view of a college student named Danny. 
And right at the beginning of the movie, she experiences a tremendous loss and uh, she's grieving and she's relying upon her her boyfriend who was going to break up with her. But then this horrible thing happens in her life. And I suppose he felt like he kind of had to stick it out with her. But he and his friends were planning to go to Sweden. They have a Swedish friend and they were going to go to Sweden middle of June, I think, for um, the traditional midsummer festival. But their Swedish friend said he lives in a like a commune in a very small uh, village community. So they go and they're there and you see all this beautiful um, uh, pageantry and there's this great folk music and there's all this culture and tradition and these customs. And it's it's a lot to soak in. And of course, it's you know, it's beautifully photographed. It's very well lit. And but some strange things start to happen and and they see um, that there's maybe a dark side to this particular midsummer celebration, this midsummer festival. And some of the other visitors from London and, and other places end up missing. And Danny through this whole thing is just really struggling. I think she's still feeling all the grief from before and she's trying to connect with her boyfriend and it's not working out. He's very distracted because he's trying to do a PhD in anthropology and he wants to study this community and their customs. But there's some pretty shocking things that happen. And at the end, without maybe spoiling it too much at this point, there's a maypole dance and uh, Danny wins this competition and becomes the sort of the May Queen of this village. But this village at the very, very end has this tradition of sacrificing human sacrifices of a sort and that takes place but you see in the last image is Danny kind of smiling peacefully as if maybe she's kind of resolved her her thing throughout all this and there's a lot of complications I left left out that we'll get to I'm sure great thanks for doing that you did a great job let's talk about just initial reactions to the film um, First of all, just the obvious reaction. Did you enjoy the movie uh, after you watched it and you reflected on it for just a moment? Did you think this was a good film? Uh, you know, that's a different question than if it's a film that, um, you know, you can say you enjoy from the standpoint of it made you feel good or something like that. But did you think it was a well-crafted film? Are you glad you watched it? Would you recommend the movie? Danny, what about you? I said actually on both those accounts, I think it is a very good movie. And, uh, and I also did enjoy it for the most part uh, while I was watching it. Much like the director's first from Hereditary, uh, there were, I was really emotionally gripped in the movie and had some moments where it absolutely was not enjoyable. But overall, I came out of this movie just being really, really impressed and, and walked into my wife in the living room after I, I, I finished watching and, and said, I'm going to watch anything this guy makes because I have really enjoyed both of his movies. So big thumbs up for me, certainly. Yeah. What about you, Scott? Scott, are you with us? Scott Hear is me? currently muted. Oh, no, no, not Here I am. There you are. Okay. okay I'm sorry. So <laughs> I'm right. back. Um, like Danny, I, I completely was blown away. I thought this was very beautifully made. It was w well acted, very well cast, especially the main character. The 
the story was very unusual and I was gripped. Yeah, there was a lot of emotional uh, stuff going on. And it was also one of the most, so did I enjoy it? Yes and no. I mean, it was one of the most disturbing movies and most shocking movies that I've seen in a while. But as a horror fan, that's not all bad. It, but it's also a very thoughtful movie. I think there's a lot going on that's, um, you know, kind of even philosophical and interesting. And um, so, yeah, I enjoyed it, but. Um, would I recommend it only to horror fans, people that kind of know what they're getting into with um, uh, with the horror genre and maybe with this director in particular? Yeah, so you say you were blown away by it. At what point in the film did you know that you were experiencing that kind of a viewing experience? Was it until you watched the whole uh, movie and that you reflected on it and you said, wow, three quarters of the way into it? one third of the way in through it after the first incredibly dark scene are you like this movie's got me like where how how were you processing it as you were going through it scott yeah it nailed me in the in the very beginning like you said there's a really dark tragic uh, moment in the first few minutes and from that point on i was like oh i gotta see how this resolves and um, like i said the actress who plays the central character danny just for my money, did a terrific job carrying this picture. So yeah, I was I was pretty much enthralled from that first few minutes. Let's talk about that opening scene for just a second. Obviously, we're going to be talking uh, about specifics in the movies here as we're reviewing the film and thinking about it and uh, discussing aspects. So of course, there's going to be spoilers here. Uh, but the opening scene is when Danny's family uh, is killed and is tragically killed by Danny's sister. Danny's sister has... Uh, do we do we know the condition? It's some kind of extreme depression. Uh, She's bipolar, is, it, is all that. They said bipolar. Said yeah, bipolar. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so what happens is uh, through just the most the most brutally graphic display of this um, is carbon monoxide poisoning coming from a vehicle that's being piped into the house uh, through these long, this long. I guess it's just like water hoses, some kind of long hoses that she had attached it to uh, attached to the vehicle going into her parents' room, and then also going into her room, and she had uh, placed the hose into a mask, what looks like a some kind of ventilator mask or an oxygen mask, and it taped it over her face. And I, I thought that was a scary moment when we saw her, uh, Danny's sister, dead with that mask on her face. The parents were kind of just calmly lying in their bed, but wasn't that a horrifying image of her laying, sitting there dead beneath her computer, and then that beautiful shot of coming up to the computer screen where you can see all of those unanswered messages from Danny to her sister. I thought that was absolutely riveting yeah. and totally had me hooked on the movie at that point. Yeah, I'm all with you there. The um, For a couple of reasons, the the, the graphic nature of, of the body, the fact that it had kind of a almost a monster makeup effect with like visible veins and stuff. It looked like she had, you know, had some kind of zombie virus rather than she had died of carbon. The, the body was just gruesome. And then just that connection with Danny of the text messages, which shows that this wasn't a case where, you know, this person was suffering and no one cared or anything. Her family had been trying to engage with her and it was, she made it so absolutely hopeless 
that that same tone of hopelessness that was in Hereditary, it just sort of and that initiates that hopelessness, and then it's, I feel like it, the shadow of that moment is cast over the entire rest of the movie. Now the whole movie's in sunlight, but it really seems to be you know darkened by that that act at the very beginning of the movie. One of the things that we discussed in Hereditary was the fact that you don't have a lot of opportunities to breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, there's not necessarily a lot of opportunities in Hereditary to see the light at the end of the tunnel, to say maybe things are going to be okay, uh, you know, to, to see the glimpse of something that's good that's coming through. And after that scene, I was really needing that. I was needing something to say here is where there's going to be good coming out of this. And of course, you're hoping that Christian her boyfriend is going to be that source of good. As it turns out, the guy is the biggest loser of any movie I've seen in a very long time, and all of his friends are too. I, what is going on with this director? Like the movie, you see Danny smiling at the very end, as you mentioned, Scott, but that smile is certainly not a smile that's supposed to elicit hope in us, at least I don't think so. Um, after that scene, as you think through the rest of the film, do you guys see anything in the movie that allows us to take a breath and say, okay, we're seeing where there is at least now a pocket of good? Does, does Ari Aster give us any of that in his films? No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's... Uh, it's it, then it's, why it's do we like this movie, you know? <laughs> I think it's clever. <laughs> That's that's why I'm interested. I think it's clever. It um, you know I don't you know if there's a message to this film or if there's a mood to this film, I I'm not you know gonna root for that. But I, I just very interesting. I think he's got an interesting perspective. I do think the film is trying to say something, however subtly, however secondarily. But um, no, I I I did not come away feeling like there's any good. But then. I'm coming from a particular perspective about life. And I think he's really, I think Ari Aster is really, at least with the film, I don't know about him as a person, but with the film, I think he's trying to undercut my world, you know, the thing that I, I hold on to as a worldview. I, I, what I think it says about Aster as a director is that he's phenomenal. <laughs> because I think people have to have those moments in order to make it through a movie. I, I just think humans and our nature is to see the good, to go toward the good, to have hope, to have a glimmer there of something that we can kind of cling to as we're surrounded by misery. And he really does not offer that in, yeah. in either of his movies. There may be some humor here and there, which is a little bit of relief, but not much. And for him to be able to keep us and capture us and have us saying, this is a very good movie, when there is no hope uh, found really throughout the film, I think that has to say a lot about Astor's ability to tell a story to keep us engaged. What do you think, Danny? I'm just sitting here trying to decide if I agree with you. I definitely agree this is a, a movie that doesn't offer much hope, but uh, I've been railing. Uh, I teach a horror class, and I often rail against the fact that all horror feels like it needs to be nihilistic. Mm -hmm. It needs to be completely hopeless and that there's, there's, there's no good in humanity and we're all, we're all doomed. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that I left this film thinking that I, I feel like in a lot of ways, this was a very personal story about a very odd 
group of people, unlikable people, the Americans, and obviously it turns out the cult pretty unlikable. Uh, but I don't know if it felt like it had a worldview. Um, for me, I can't. I'm very interested in hearing y'all talk about this. But uh, for me, it, it felt more like a a more personal story. Uh, and Hereditary felt that way to me too. There, there, there's those are hopeless films, but they seem to more involve the people that are in the movie and not society in general for me. So I guess maybe I'm just taking them as more personal films and I haven't been applying their, uh, uh, their philosophy to the world at large. Yeah. I don't think I'm talking about worldview yet. I'm just talking about the demeanor of the film as a whole is dark from beginning to end. And I don't, I don't think people watch movies can take that in for two hours or ever how long the film is 90 minutes without having some relief without having some hope whether it's at a personal level or whether it's at a worldview level i don't think Ari Aster gives us that very much but i think he does such an amazing job that we're okay with it uh, it's really just for me a credit to the director no what doubt do so? he really didn't he really in hereditary that's the one that i feel like i he had a knife to my throat the entire time. Uh, I don't know, maybe something about the sunshine and the uh, the sort of the observing a, a culture that was unfamiliar. I, I feel like I got a little bit of a break up until the point that we find out what happens when you turn 72. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. So, yeah, let's keep moving forward then. She wants to become, well, let's talk about uh, Pele for a moment. As we will find out, he's going to be integral to the film. Uh, he's um, uh, has family who is a part of this cult, and uh, he is ultimately bringing Danny uh, to be uh, a very important player. I think it's his role, his plan all along for her to be the May Queen. And I, I've noticed that there's even uh, conspiracy theories out there that he had a role to play in the family's death at the beginning in order to get Danny to Sweden. Uh, I don't necessarily see that. I'm not sure if I'm willing to go that far. Either of you want to comment on that really no, quick? I, I, I can't imagine that why, how that's true. Yeah. Have you seen that at all, Scott? Not for idea? me. No. I, I mean, you mean the conspiracy element? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. that's far-fetched. Yeah. So the, they get there, but there is clearly a connection between uh, Pele and Danny. You both would agree with that, I'm assuming. That he has a real interest in her uh, and getting yes. her to Sweden, right? And um, so those scenes in the in the apartment and the conversations, those really awkward, tense scenes where we're just we kind of almost feel, at least I did, like. I wasn't even supposed to be a part of that conversation, but I'm there anyway, listening to these people discuss some uh, things that are just really uncomfortable. And uh, it's like a kind of conversation where you want to leave the room and you feel so bad for Danny. She wants to be a part. She needs people. She's really hurting. And yet everyone that she turns to uh, just seems to be not handling her very well. And like, they don't even really want her around. And then this invitation comes right to, to go. Um, so maybe those scenes just in general where she's talking to the guys, um, she's kind of in and out of the conversation. Sometimes it seems like she's in a haze and then she catches part of the conversation and then she realizes, wait, what's going on with this midsummer thing? And, you know, there's some, what, what did those scenes do for you guys? How did that set up the rest of the film? And, uh, 
yeah, did you begin to pick up on Pele's interest in Danny at that point? Either of you guys? Well, for yeah. me, uh, is that, uh, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry, I, is it Pele? I'm not even sure Pele. how to pronounce his name. Um, for for me, he you know he was Rose from Get Out, right? Uh, him and his brother both serve that function. They go out into society and find victims for and get out the family, but here the cult. Uh, I found him incredibly despicable because he is the most open, lovable character up until you find out that you know him and his brother have been out trying to find people to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, and, and as far as Danny and her interaction, um, when they first get to Sweden, we already know she's on drugs or she's on a, a, some kind of medicine for her anxiety. Um, we see the drug bottle at the beginning of the movie, Adivan, I believe. And, um, and then when they, they first arrive in Sweden and meet uh, Pelly's friends, uh, they do some mushrooms, right? And Danny sees her uh, the grass growing out of her, her hand during the hallucination, and then she goes into a to sort of a panic uh, in, in a later scene because of it. And... Uh, Every interaction after that, I kept asking myself, how drugged is Danny at this point? Because they were drinking so many things that you didn't know what was in what they were drinking. There, there were, you know, there are obviously, you know, psychedelics being distributed everywhere. Um, so I wonder how much of this we were supposed to see uh, as a unreliable narrator kind of thing. Yeah, what do you think, Scott? Yeah, I mean that's an that's an interesting. Yeah, there yeah, there's certainly a lot of intoxicants and uh, hallucinogens being consumed here, but that's not terribly unusual in sort of a pagan ritual. Um, you know, I think of like the Native American peyote and things like that. But um, back to Pele, you know, initially he seems like perhaps the most emotionally intelligent individual of of the boys of the guys he's the one that seems to be sensitive to danny's grief um all throughout and he's relating to it because he talks about his own parents having died in a fire which is perhaps telling uh given later incidents but he uh you know he just seems more sensitive yeah we learn that he has lured these people to his village as have certain others lured people in for uh, sacrificial purposes and to bring in new blood for um, their fertility things and so forth. So yeah, at first I think Paley's very sympathetic and I think he's actually very, you know, very appealing as a human, but then it turns out to be pretty sinister if you step back from it for a moment. And should we discuss here some of the background imagery that we've already begun seeing in the movie through some of these scenes in the apartments and at Danny's place. Uh, of course, the most obvious is the picture of the, the big bear and uh, with his nose on the little girl uh, and over top of Danny's bed. And then you see some other things. Um, you see scarecrows, I think, uh, in the apartments. And you just I think in this movie, you could go back, you could watch it a hundred times and you could pinpoint all of these things in the background that has something to say later in the film. Uh, were you all picking up on these as you were watching the movie? Did, did you think they were placed in such a way where they were supposed to at least somehow signal to us that's probably going to be important, even though right now I don't know exactly what it means? Or were you oblivious to it? What, did you pick up on some of those things, Danny? 
I was absolutely oblivious to it the first time I watched it. Uh, I probably shouldn't have been, knowing how much you know he seeded uh, the iconography in the Hereditary uh, for I forget the name of their uh, their demon in that movie. But um, but you know, I, I did rewatch about half of it today, and the foreshadowing is everywhere. There are so many of uh, images that will come to play later. So so many statements, uh, even the questions she asked. Uh, uh, Pele's telling you know the, the, they base their lives on the four seasons and this you know you're 16 you're an adult and then you go on this pilgrimage and then 32 you become a worker and you know when he finishes she's like well what happens at, after 72 well we find out pretty quickly what happens after 72 but that type of foreshadowing is is throughout the movie uh, and, and I think any movie that is that you can see that kind of stuff on a rewatch uh, is going to be one that I, I elevate in my understanding of it. When, when I see that, that, that things are planned that meticulously, I really appreciate it. What about you, Scott? The same those here. things. Yeah, totally. I, I didn't, when I watched it, you know, the first time when I first saw the film, um, a lot just went past me and I didn't catch some of this foreshadowing. It really is on the second watch, at least for me. When I watched it again today, knowing the general plot and remembering it, when I saw the picture, the painting of the bear over her couch, I thought, wow, you know, that's just screaming at me that this is going to be significant later. And it was. So it's just, like I said, it's just very clever. It's just very well crafted. I like that when I watch a movie. That's part of my. I would say the first time I watched this film, um, I wasn't sort of appreciating the craft of the thing so much, but you know, it disturbed me. I found it very shocking, and at and for even a couple of days, it sort of sat with me in a weird way, like a bad taste. But then when I watched it today, I, even though I still am shocked and repulsed by some of the events, I could enjoy and appreciate the art of the whole thing. Um, because you know, I already knew what the what the big reveals were going to be. So I, yeah, I was catching more of it today. Yeah, I was telling Danny before we came on air that I watched the movie uh, for the first time on a Saturday night. I had to preach the next morning. That didn't go too well for me. You know, I had to take some like uh, you know uh, some kind of serum to make me forget what I had just seen, <laughs> so I could get in the pulpit. The thing is brutal. Uh, let me ask you this question though, because I've been wrestling with this a little bit. Um, I've, I've gone back uh, after I watched the movie just to go back like on some YouTube videos and things to see how how many things really were foreshadowing, how many things he put in the background. And, you know, as they're driving, uh, once they get to Sweden and they're driving to that first stop, there's even some uh, markings on the left side of the road in the grass that were clear, clearly some kind of ancient ruin markings just to demonstrate that there's, this isn't just a normal countryside. Basically, in every shot, I think, there's probably something going on uh, that keeps pointing us to the future. When does that become too much? And maybe the answer is it doesn't. Maybe for you guys, the more you, a movie can fill in those kinds of um, forward projecting ideas in the background, uh, the cooler it is. But I, I don't think so for me. I think there can be a tipping point when it, it just becomes cheesy. I don't think he did that, but when do those kinds of things happen too much? Um, Danny, from your perspective, if, if a filmmaker is as good as Astor is, is it the more the merrier, or can he go overboard with this kind of stuff? 
I think probably the answer to that question lies in the fact that I didn't really notice much the first time through. Maybe if those things were hitting me over the head and taking me out of, uh, you know, the the magic circle, so to speak, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't suspending my disbelief because I kept bumping my head against those, um, mm-hmm. then it'd be a problem. But if, 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 again, if it's something that I mostly discover on rewatch, then I think it's, it's all fair game. Even if it is loaded into every shot, I think about rewatching, uh, the sixth sense, you know, the, the second time watching the sixth sense and how heavy handed the foreshadowing is in that movie, but it certainly didn't take anything away from my first viewing of it. Uh, and you watch again, it's like every single scene, there's a clue that he's, you know, really a ghost um so i i think the answer is probably yes though i can't off the top of my head think of examples where that kind of meticulous background detail took me out of the of the film what do you think scott just from a philosophical point of view yeah well i think you can overdo it um you don't want to necessarily broadcast that this is a symbol or that this represents something later is foreshadowing pay attention to me but I don't think he did that, I, just for the reasons Danny mentioned, too, because you don't notice it so so much the first time through. It's later, then you can really appreciate it. Um, you know, sometimes it is possible when we're interpreting a text, whether it's a um, piece of literature or um, the Bible or even, you know, a movie, mm-hmm. sometimes the interpreter can be bringing a lot of stuff in there and seeing things that aren't really there, you know, like uh-huh. Freud even said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a symbol of something else. But um, I, I, I just think he was, he, he had enough reserve. Um, I, yes, I can imagine that you could overdo that and be too obvious about it. But he's, he's subtle, he's tactful about it, it's clever. It didn't uh, distract at all, from, at least not for me. It didn't for me either, but this is definitely on my mind because from a pastoral perspective and someone who reads and interprets the Bible, uh, we want to read the Bible Christologically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Old and New Testaments, all of it is a story about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But most people, as they're working through how to do that, are going to enter into a stage where everything is Jesus. <laughs> And then you have to begin thinking, well, if everything is Jesus, nothing is Jesus, right? There's, there has to be some kind of space where we step back and we see, yes, it all points that direction, but it can't all be that direction. So I've just, I, with that always kind of on my mind, as I watch these kinds of movies, it's just interesting for me to think through that. You know, if a director just goes too far in making everything point to the reveal, even if, even if you go back and rewatch it, and you say, "Oh man, there's that and that and that and that and that," where is it just become too much? Where it's like, "Oh, this is kind of lame." Actually, I don't think Astor does it. I I really don't. I think he uh, is subtle in some ways and has uh, tact and class as these as he's putting these images together. But it's just interesting to bring up. I think a less talented director, because anybody could do this, right? You you write the film, um, you know where you're going. And then in every shot, you just stick something in there to, that has some kind of resemblance to where you're going in the movie. It's not necessarily that it's hard to do. It's just that are you going to be able to do it in a way that is artistic? And I think that he does. So I, I, I'm fascinated by what you just said, Phil, because uh, 
I, I think in my, in my classroom, uh, and of course, you know, I'm coming from a much more secular view of things in a classroom. Um, I'm a big proponent of this old critical thought called reader response. It's the idea that a text is created by the interaction of the audience and the work, that there's no text just sitting there. And I was just thinking how that can't be reproached in, from the pulpit, right? The, right? the text has to already have its meaning, and it is not about the audience at all. Um, though it obviously you know, affects the audience, but it's yes. you're not creating the text. Uh, I don't know, that, that, that has nothing to do with this movie whatsoever, but it is very fascinating how... The, w the way I teach a class and what I tell my students and how I have them think about literature completely doesn't apply uh, when you're talking about religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there is an authority of the text that stands on its own, right? And then we certainly bring presuppositions to it, just like we do uh, to a movie, which I think also lends itself to the impact of Midsummer on the viewer, at least it did me. I, I just, I was not prepared for where he was getting ready to take us and the manner in which uh, he got us there. So let's. So we're in Sweden now. The first scene, somebody just mentioned it a moment ago, uh, is they, uh, they take mushrooms. I don't know what the right language is. Do you take mushrooms or what do you do? I don't know. But mushrooms are involved and they begin hardcore tripping. And, oh man, I just, I, I don't know, this scene... I hated this scene. Not in a, not in the, because I, it's just, I just felt so horrible for Danny because uh, I've never experienced a trip like that, but I know that there's no control. Like you are, you're just left to the mercy of ever how long those, those mushrooms are going to have an impact on your body and you just kind of have to go with it. And she is in no condition to do that. She needs control in her life. She needs to be able to focus and uh, have direction with her mind and with her thoughts. And it was completely gone. And I was thinking, reflecting back on this, how kind of that scene where she has lost control of her ability to think rationally and see rationally and, and be able to move in the right direction really sets the stage for the rest of the movie where she is going to be out of control until the end when she makes the decision who is going to be sacrificed and finally she has some control back ergo here comes a smile so that's a little bit of a of, of my take on the shroom scene what do you think I, I i agree with you that that scene was awful and that that is when i knew that christian was an awful human being Yes. There, but before then, it could have just been that he was spineless and couldn't get himself extricated from this relationship, especially after her loss. But when knowing that she suffers from anxiety and she's just gone through this horrible loss, allowing her to be pressured into the uh, the hallucinogen was just awful. And like, and immediately all the guys on that trip become people that you cannot relate to in any way whatsoever, which has the magical effect of having us all in on Danny. Right? Mm -hmm. Danny is where all our emotion goes for the rest of that movie. So when she makes this decision at the end, we're kind of complicit in it. And I think it's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Scott, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, um, you know, go along with you guys. I, I thought that that was, you know, an element of her loneliness. She is all alone. 
the guy that is supposed to be her emotional support is just not that for her. And like Danny said, this is a woman who has uh, some anxiety issues and she's just experienced this terrific tragedy and loss. And she she actually doesn't want to do the mushrooms, right? I mean, she says not now or, you know, you guys go ahead and there's social pressure. And Christian, her boyfriend, just sort of caves into that and, and is part of it. Um, I felt bad for her. I felt bad for her. And and she does end up having sort of a very negative experience, as not surprisingly. Yeah, so if I can piggyback on what you just said, uh, I've already mentioned the lack of control when you're on a substance like that. You have to let it take its course before you can regain any sense of you're, you're in charge of your body again. But you just mentioned, Scott, that she had no support, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that the guys that she was with, especially the one who was supposed to be the most comforting presence in her life, the one who is supposed to be a protection for her, uh, is, is absolute garbage and is just serving his own interests. No support. So isn't it interesting that one of the fundamental aspects of this cult is that they wail with each other? Hmm. This to me is the most important part of the whole movie. That this is, the, as I was watching the film, and this was highlighted three or four times in the film, I was thinking this is it. This is what the movie is about ultimately. And I, I don't know if I'm right about that, but for me it was. Because at the most horrific moments in the, in, in the film, uh, when we're at the, um, what's the, what was the place even called? Uh, where they went? It was a village with a Swedish name that I can't pronounce. I can't remember. Yeah, we'll just say the village. When the horrible things happened, the people would wail together as if they were all experiencing it at the same time. Right. So Mm -hmm. when the elderly gentleman falls off the cliff, he doesn't die. He's moaning. He's groaning. They all are. They're all groaning. They're all yelling. They're all wailing. When Danny walks in on Christian and the girl during the ceremony and getting her pregnant, she absolutely loses it. And what happens? She has people around her who are losing it with her, screaming and crying and wailing with her. The very thing that Danny has never had, she is finding in this in this village in this cult which is kind of the whole point of a cult right it makes you feel like you are one with the people like you've never experienced before but then i think you know of course i where where do i go i go with i go to romans 12 rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn the the idea of unity among the family of god is a huge theme for christians the wall of hostility has been torn down the book of ephesians we are united with christ hidden with him we are all one body one family the body of christ and so i see this as an evil uh in in this movie as as most cults are this this evil take on something that is beautiful but for danny it's what she's been longing for the entire movie, right? So, Danny, tell me, tell me where I'm wrong here. I, I don't think you are, and, and but I would say that for Danny, it is a, it is beautiful, right? Uh, it, it, I, I I did a little thinking about whether this film had any sort of uh, commentary on Christianity, specifically uh, religion, even in general. And like I said, I I, I really do see this as Danny's story more than. 
than any kind of overarching view, but uh, uh, I think she does get a lot out of this pagan religion that we hope people get out of uh, religions that we may be more uh, positive about. Uh, so I, I think you're right, but I, I just I don't know what the message of it is. I don't know if it is about corrupting those concepts or if it's just that it happens to coincide. That's what I think. I think it's just a universal longing, right? That we, we want to have that feeling that we are understood, that someone feels our pain. Uh, this is what got Bill Clinton elected. Uh, remember the, the debate, I feel your pain. I mean, that one line got him elected. Uh, we need that and we want that as human beings. It just so happens, in my opinion, that the Christian faith is the only thing that really offers that. But this movie is definitely buying into those themes. Scott, you had to have picked up on that, right? The wailing and the unity and what what did you think about that? Yeah, totally. There was a, yeah, I, you know, it's like a sympathetic emotion, right? I mean, you know, you where you sort of take on the emotion of the person that you're relating with. And in some ways, Paley kind of did that, right? I mean, as I mentioned before, the couple of conversations, at least two times when he was sitting down with Danny, both in the States and then in their in their um, uh, bunkhouse in Sweden, he had conversations and he's relating to her and he talks about feeling held. That's how he said it. You know, I feel held here. When I lost my parents, I felt held. And there is sort of a body, there is sort of a, a, in this commune or community, there was a comment made that, that the children are raised by everybody. There's nobody worried about who owns what. It's all very, um, you know, shared and egalitarian and there's unity. So yeah, when someone's suffering, we all suffer. And when someone's happy, we're all happy. I, I thought that was a very powerful part of the film. Now, I do think, you know, I mean, we'll probably come to this again, but I do think that it was a little, and this might even be contradictory to what I said a moment ago, it was a little bit on the nose. It was a little bit obvious to name, in my opinion, the boyfriend Christian. And, you know, it, it, I, am I wrong there that, 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 that his name is Christian? And, and this seemed like, to me, it seemed like, and I, I think... I think Danny's right. I think this is supposed to be a personal story about Dan Danny in the movie. But the whole context to me also screamed, as did Hereditary, um, that, you know, sort of an earth paganism and how it is offers something that Christian can't offer. Anyway, that that's maybe something we want to talk about later. I'll pick up on that and, su and support what you're saying. Uh, I don't know if I'll come around to agreeing, but I can definitely support it because contrast the village and the sharing of emotion with the scene after Danny's parents and sister are dead. And she is just laying on the couch across his lap and she is wailing. And it's these, just gut-wrenching, emotional. Again, this actress is just so good at what she does. But Christian's sitting there, and he's just kind of patting her. He, he, he absolutely isn't sharing in her grief, and he can't even give her any kind of comfort uh, like she gets from the village. So if it's the sort of hopelessness and lack of comfort in Christianity and the, you know, the promise of the pagan, I can, yeah, I, I bet you could, you, you could support that argument. Yeah, and of course it goes without saying. 
uh, that it doesn't really work when you are the one responsible for the misery and then you try to comfort the person in their misery. <laughs> that is a far cry from what we see in any true sense of the word of actual support. Nevertheless, I think she's so desperate for it that even though these people are the very ones who are responsible, ultimately, I mean, Christian's just a loser in general, but they are the ones responsible for the death and for the mayhem and for uh, the poisoning and, and all of the crazy stuff that happens. And then when someone responds to that uh, dying and death and decay and heartache, they come alongside mm. with great support. It's, it's incredibly ironic uh, how sometimes we can dig our own ditches and, and then we want people to kind of misery loves company kind of thing, you know, really interesting. Um, so, yeah, so they get there, you know, when they come through the circle of the sunshine and uh, everybody is dressed in white, uh, which, of course, elicits ideas of purity and that uh, these people are together and loving. And uh, this is finally what everybody has been looking for. Uh, it's going to be a great summer. Um, but it just always feels off, you know, nothing quite feels right. Um, then we get to see this, these weird images, right? I can't remember. Scott, remind me. That it, I mean, isn't there what almost looks like on a clothesline? But there's, uh, aren't there pictures? Like, isn't there a bear there again? Or there's yeah. some of the horrific imagery. Isn't that right? Well, so there's there's a there's an actual bear. There's a big there's a bear in a cage, um, just sitting <laughs> right, out right. the lawn. <laughs> that, that very little, not a whole lot of comment until later, but. Yeah, there's there's like a tapestry that looks like yeah. it's some kind of needlework that's hanging up on a clothesline or something, and the and the camera goes up close to it, and each panel it begins with you know sort of hearts and love and starry eyes from a couple, but it it sort of tells the story about the seduction of a man, and it shows how um, a young maiden. Um, uh, chooses a mate and this is as we learn later how new blood is brought into the community and there's a few odd things that are done namely that she creates a love charm and puts it under his bed and she snips a, a, a pubic hair and bakes it into a pie and serves it to him and these things are uh, sort of make him bewitched and uh, he's attracted to her. And then, of course, there is a mating scene, a, very, a ceremonial mating scene, a ritualistic sort of sex scene. And, and you know, and just as a side note, the girl named Maya, I mean, the name means mother. I mean, there's all, there, is a, there are a few times when Ari Aster is a little obvious. But, um, yeah, so that's the tapestry is it kind of tells that story about how that all, that particular ritual unfolds. Yeah, and you know, those scenes where, well, you know, before we get quiet there, let's talk about the um, the seventy two year olds going up to the top. Uh, as you are watching this, and they they come to the dinner table. So what happens is there's this massive dinner table, this big feast. They're all together, they're all eating, and then it looks like guests of honor are coming from this little triangular, what looks like a teepee or something in the distance, and they come walking, and they have very somber faces, no expression, no emotion. They look sad because of that, and they sit down and they eat. And Did you all have any idea what was getting ready to happen? I mean, I knew there was probably death was getting ready to be involved to some degree, 
but I was not ready for just how visceral of an experience watching the next 10 minutes of this movie was going to be. And I thought it set it up perfectly. This communal meal together as family, almost celebrating and rejoicing over these two people, 72 years of living within the village. And then it leads to this heart-wrenching, difficult-to-watch scene. I, the, the juxtaposition between those two things, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. Your thoughts on, on those two scenes? Either of you have any thoughts? On <laughs> yeah, I do. I'll jump in. Uh, <laughs> trying to wait my turn. Uh, the um, I agree with you that the, the scene was incredibly traumatic. The uh, I just can't. I don't know why. After the you know the the amazing beheading scene and uh, hereditary, but I, I I don't think I was quite prepared for how graphic this film was going to turn. So I, I, I knew the deaths were coming. I didn't know they're going to jump from a cliff or whatever, but I knew the deaths were coming. There's going to be some kind of sacrifice here because, you know, it's a cult movie. They're old. It's, there was going to be a sacrifice. There was going to be some ceremony and they were going to be burned or something was going to happen. But, but the, it was so brutal. The guy, the guy not quite dying and uh, having to be killed and the, the brain, the gray matter everywhere. Uh, I don't mind any gore. I think it was phenomenal, but it was kind of unexpected, and it really drove home. Uh, this is a different kind of movie, right? That, that it, it, in case you didn't know these people were in danger, here is some incredibly graphic violence to show that that was affecting, like it, it, emotionally affecting violence. Well, as I'm watching it, okay, the the female goes first off the cliff, and she does a, you know. She does a swan dive off that thing, and she's she's arms are stretched out, and she's flat, and she hits, you know, flat on that massive rock, which looks like an altar. Her whole body's in her head, like instant death. I was like, okay, well, at least it was quick. And then the guy comes and just like walks off. The he got, he comes straight down like vertical. I'm like, what's he doing? Like, that's going to be horrible. His legs are going to hit first. And that's exactly what happened. And we get to see the whole thing. Oh, man. Just an unbelievably disturbing scene. What did you think, Scott, when you watched that thing? It shocked me. And, and part of the shock, and this is, again, to credit the artistry of this thing, they drag it out. I mean, you see there's not much speaking for a while. And like you said, the the two they're they're you know dressed in ceremonial ceremonial clothing. They come out, they eat with the community. These two stand up. They start saying things in Swedish. They even do you know sort of ritualized breathing exercises and and gestures with their hands. And they toast each other with some kind of a uh, a drink. And and it's slow. It takes its time. This is a picture that does not rush. And and then they go up on top of this cliff and you just know something bad is going to happen. But I wasn't sure exactly what. And, you know, someone, uh, an elder of the village cuts their hands and they smear blood on a rune stone. And and it's just slow paced. And all the crowd are watching when they're about to jump. So the, the whole thing was a shock. But part of the shock was just the buildup. I. I just was very, very tense that something happened. And then when it did, it was just, um, you know, just devastating. It was graphic. Yeah, remind me. 
it was graphic it was well lit you know a lot of times gore or, or violent scenes are off screen or they're there it's in the dark or, or but this was just like full on full full light of day um it's even you know uh since it's june in 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 sweden it's sunny all night long practically and so the just the yeah the whole thing was just powerful yeah i mean it was like we were just standing there watching it with the rest of the people watching them fall right off the cliff and they remind me who i think it was simon was it simon who had the correct reaction which was this is crazy we're getting out of here right now i mean wasn't he the one that reacted that way yeah so there there were two other uh characters that were sort of lured in by another swede from London, they're Londoners, and they're they're an engaged young engaged couple, Simon and Connie, and and they totally freak out, and they want to leave right then, and they're angry and they're offended, and they just feel, you know, yeah, they had moral outrage at this thing that you're just allowing someone, who, in, a person to sacrifice themselves and die, and yeah, it has. They, it's explained to them what what's going on, and they stay around, but then they eventually leave and. And bad things happen to them too. Yeah. So, Danny, it seems like um, you want to be careful and cautious. It seems like a, a couple of co- podcasts I've picked this up uh, that you, you want to be cautious not to overinterpret, not to try to make a film say something that it's not really trying to say, and maybe just enjoy a good story when it's there. Um, but there is a question that's asked right in uh, at some point. And don't they some again remind me, Scott? I don't. Maybe I just maybe I uh, thought this happened because this is what I thought it was saying. But doesn't somebody at some point say that this is better that way? They don't have to suffer late later in life, or issues don't have to come up uh, for the elderly. Is something like that said? Remind me, Scott, Christ, about Christian. Why yeah, Danny. You know, so so Christian is 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 upset about it, but he's not upset enough. And, and Danny is, um, she's just sort of um, a very flat, I mean, she's upset, but then she just kind of is just sort of shocked. I think she's in shock. And she says, are you not disturbed by what we just saw? And Christian says something like, yeah, of course I am. But think what we do to old people. We just put them away in a nursing home. And they probably think that this is pretty repulsive behavior on our part and we need to be open-minded and cultural relativism and so on and so forth okay yeah okay that's interesting so it's actually christian not someone who's part of the cult it's actually christian who's justifying by saying look at the way we treat yes our elderly yeah i, I guess i forgot it was that and, and and as a cultural anthropologist the you know being open to other cultural concepts seems pretty natural for him yeah yeah so yeah i mean that's the that's the question, though, right? Uh, which is, uh, especially in the times we're living right now with COVID-19, and there's questions about the elderly and different places around the world are responding to this differently in terms of providing treatment or the kind of care that they are receiving. Do you think there's anything here that Astor is trying to say about that? Or um, is it just part of the plot point that, to get us to the next stage? What do you think? I feel like that's probably more us learning something about Christian that he's able to, you know, sort of intellectually contextualize this. And as we've seen for the entire movie, it's not in touch with his emotions in any way that's, you know, 
that would suggest he had a spine or a heart <laughs> or any of that. I, you may be right that it's ideological, but uh, or it may be possible that it's ideological, but it seems like, again, that's more of, here's another example of how awful these uh, American tourists are. Yeah, what do you think, Scott? Well, I'm willing to think that maybe Ari Aster is just good at telling a story and he's not really trying to proclaim any particular profound message but he does use tropes he does use conventions and 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 the particular conventions he he chooses to use are that in my opinion that paganism is more humane is is more rational than in some ways than than christianity or christendom and I mean, maybe this is because my mind is filled with this stuff. I won't bore you with what I'm doing my doctoral work on, but let's just say that I've been studying Greco-Roman practices with deformed or disabled infants and how that changed with the entrance of Christianity in, in, in Western civilization. Infants were just strangled if they were in any way deformed. And, and similarly, um, some cultures would, um, you know, and have just sort of uh, relegated the, the elderly or those who become disabled later in life to um, be euthanized or, or you know, kill themselves for the good of the community. And that that is somehow more humane than the things that, you know, that, that we end up doing and prolonging death and prolonging life unnecessarily so on. So a lot of those things are in my mind anyway, and I, and I guess I, I see that in here that there's sort of this proclamation that paganism, um, you know, doesn't have the same sort of um, irrational sanctity of life doctrine, or, or maybe I'm wrong, and, and, you know, maybe I'm getting off base here, but I just see that this idea of let's let the old people, after they've been productive, they need to kind of, they've had their time, and, you know, maybe it's a circle of life for them, but it's, they're done, and... Whereas Christianity would be more like, let's care for the elderly, let's not kill them or, you know, pressure them to kill themselves, but let's um, care for those who are disabled or sick. And so I see that coming out, but that's partly just what's in my mind right now I, all the time. I would suggest, though, that the extreme sort of gore and violence and grossness of the moment contradicts that. I don't think it is displayed in any way that suggests that it's a beautiful and correct way of uh, eliminating the elderly or dealing with the people growing old. Uh, but again, like you said, and we're getting back to my reader response concept, I, I think our interactions with the text in that case are just different. That's really, really interesting. I think that whether or not Ari Aster has something that he wants to say. I think it's it's going to be a lazy viewer who doesn't ask these questions and is and is wrestling through what that does mean because it's definitely a bioethical issue. Uh, I I absolutely think, and I have said from the pulpit that we have an opportunity sometimes to extend life in ways that is ultimately harmful mm -hmm. for those to whom the. Uh, life's saving devices are being attached and the medicine is being given and, and whatnot. Those are difficult issues that families have to work through. And Christianity absolutely sees the value of every life and wants to maintain that life uh, for the dignity of the life and for the glory of God. But we take it to extremes. This is an extreme example of the other side. 
where do we find the place where it's the correct balance, where we value life, we see the dignity, we see the glory of the image of God in every person, and yet we also recognize that because of a sin-cursed earth, uh, we are going to pass. And there does reach a place where we do more harm potentially than good uh, when we extend the life. And I, I know that that's definitely in your wheelhouse, Scott. A lot of the stuff you've been thinking and writing and doing is, is in that. But that's very close to home for me because I have people, I have family members who come to me and have to, want to talk through these things. And how do you best guide them in the discussion? And right now the answer is not go watch Midsummer. <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> oh, well if I, if I can add to that and i won't i won't belabor this but so so there's a very prominent influential ethicist at princeton university named peter singer and he wrote a book called unsanctifying human life and his whole mm. point is that um, ancient Greco-Roman paganism was better because it was utilitarian and they knew how to deal with people who were dis- disabled and that that it wasn't until the birth of Christianity that we somehow had this sanctity of life notion. And he argues that it's less humane than his way, which is to return back to sort of up the pagan way. And I, I see elements of that in this movie. Um yeah, I found the the uh, people jumping off the cliff to be horrendous, but the but the cult people seemed to think it was something very lovely and natural and beautiful. In the same way that Peter Singer today argues that you know there can be something really good and wholesome in killing the disabled, and I think that you know to me it's shocking, but he's got an audience and people anyway. I don't know. If, I don't know if Ari Aster is really trying to promote a certain worldview, but he he he. He's smart enough to latch on to some of these dynamics and use them in a uh, in a narrative way. Yeah, his film is very. Point. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the, oh, please I, go ahead. I was just going to say that Scott's exactly right. That it feels like he's he draws from a sort of a literary and aware uh, set of you know tropes and mm-hmm. and when I say tropes, I absolutely have no negative connotation to the mm-hmm. concept of tropes, right? Sure. They, they're just building blocks, but he seems very aware of, of, of what buttons he can push uh, emotionally and different viewers. Uh, so I, I definitely agree with that. I did want to put it real quickly before Philip gets to his point that even the villagers recognize that this was odd behavior, right? They were really upset that, or they at least acted to be upset that the recruiters hadn't prepared the mm-hmm. Europeans and the Americans to see this, that they didn't, you know, tell them that this was going to be happening. And that all could have been theater and it very well may have been. I, again, I did not watch it as recently as Scott did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but if it wasn't theater, then they are at least aware that, uh, that their activities are going to be seen as abnormal. Yeah, that's a good question, uh, whether or not that was a show. But let me make another connecting point to this. Maybe we're taking this too far, but that's kind of what we do around here. You know, one of the areas that this definitely comes up in contemporary discussion about bioethical issues, especially in the United States, is in the area of understanding uh, life in the womb and what that life is going to look like when it is born. 
And um, there is, of course, a, a very strong position that if you know a life is going to be uh, handicapped, if there is going to be some kind of disablement within that life, then the humane thing to do, the right thing to do, is to terminate the life in the womb because we don't want a human to have to experience that in life, right? Uh, this is a very, very prominent position, a very horrifying one to me, but a very prominent one. Isn't it interesting that if that were the position that Astor is really trying to say, and as we've all mentioned now, I don't, I don't necessarily think he has a position, but he's putting these things out there definitely for us to, to, to build upon and to think through. But if that were his position, isn't it interesting that the person in the village who has the authority uh, to determine where the village is going in the future through the drawings and through the writings is a person who is disabled and is highly valued. Fascinating, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, think I, it is. You know, I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll add on to that. I think, I think it is too. Um, there is something about... Um, so the person you're talking about, they, they called him Ruben. He's not in it a lot. He only appears in a, co a couple of times. He doesn't even say anything. But he has some intellectual disability. And so, there. yeah, I mean, what we would call mental illness um, or, you know, some kind of um, uh, intellectual developmental impairment. Um, some, some cultures, I would again go back to saying pagan cultures or, you know, more primitive cultures see these kind of people in a in sort of a mystical way um it is odd it, i mean to us and it is sort of a, it seems like a discrepancy because on the one hand there is this idea of you know when you've outlived your usefulness you should you know courteously bow out and at the same time they're they're highlighting this person and in fact the elder so josh who is one of the american friends and he's doing a phd thesis on this midsummer stuff as well he asks one of the elders um he says what happens when reuben dies because reuben like you said phil is the guy who's uh writing runes and putting drawings in their sacred book and the village elder says, well, then we, you know, Reuben is the example of inbreeding. And when, if and when he dies, all of our oracles are the result of intentional, deliberate inbreeding. So, yeah, I mean, there is something um, sort of counterintuitive going on there, too, sure. Well, let's keep, keep moving forward. I, this is by far probably the longest podcast we've, already, we've ever had, but it's just, there's just so much here. It's incredible. Um Things start going downhill fast, right? <laughs> so uh, people start disappearing. Simon just randomly disappears in this scene that is just so... What was Simon's girlfriend's name again? Connie, is that right? Connie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Connie's just beside yeah. herself because she knows Simon is not just going to leave, right? He's, he's not just going to get in a car without me and abandon me. Uh, so we all know that that's not right. People start disappearing uh, at this point, I was telling, again, I was telling Danny before we started recording, at this point, it began to feel to me a lot like a classic slasher horror movie. People start disappearing, and then we start finding bodies, you know, <laughs> and especially towards the end when Christian literally starts bumping into bodies, walking into rooms, people are hanging from the ceiling. It, it was about five minutes of just absolute classic 
horror. And, and if he didn't do that intentionally, if he wasn't just snickering and saying, this is just too awesome to not do, I would be very, very shocked. I think it was intentional. Uh, Danny, you said maybe you weren't consciously thinking that at the time, but you can see it looking back. Scott, did you pick up on that at all towards the end of the movie as he's bumping into bodies and stuff? Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I sort of uh, consciously put it together and said, this is um, like a slasher movie, but it, 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 I mean, it, it was pretty profound that it, this, this built up and there was a lot of um, quietness to this movie and a lot of emotional tension. But then those last maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. That's yeah. when you knew you were watching a horror film. I mean, there was some disturbing stuff before, but this is really, yeah. You start seeing these bodies and they're being, and they're disfigured and in strange poses and all kinds of strange things were going on. Yeah. But it was, I had an interesting reaction to it because those moments were not near as frightening to me. I like, mm. I almost felt like, Oh, I'm back home now. Like this is, I've seen 50 billion of these movies, you know, <laughs> he's seeing a bunch of really dismembered, horrible things and he's running into them and it's terrifying. And of course, what's going to happen is as he's distracted by one of these bodies, the bad guy's going to show up and get him in the background. That's exactly what happens. They showed up and they paralyze him as he's looking at the dude whose lungs were open, which was horrifying. Uh, I, I was in like a pretty, a pretty peaceful place at that point. <laughs> Probably maybe other people would be uh, even more freaked out than usual. You know what I'm saying, Danny, or does that not make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, uh, and again, I was, it, I don't remember having that thought when I watched it, but as soon as you mentioned it, it's it, all those scenes popped into my head. Um, it does turn into a, a pretty straightforward horror film from that point on. Uh, and it's wonderful. Like I, it, it's also for me, also enjoyable, um, I don't, I don't know. I think I may have read this film in a lot more straightforward horror way than, uh, than I might normally, but it definitely kicks in there into just full on, uh, enjoyable horror film. Like it, it becomes much less emotionally wrenching at that point. Um, it may be because I hate everyone that died. Like there, there's, you know, I, I have, I have no feeling for any of those characters. They all were relatively despicable. The, the British couple, I guess, they, yeah. they, they seem to be fine. They, they were normal human beings with emotion. But all of the Americans were horrible people. And it's not so bad to see them die strange and beautiful deaths. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that, listen, here's one question. This is just random. It doesn't really follow the flow here. But did either of you guys see on the bed sheet uh, the Shining's carpet pattern? It makes I me very not. sad that I missed that. I'm telling you, it's there, man. You've <laughs> got to go back and look at it. Like it's in the scene. It's a little bit later, and the the sheet, the cover, uh, to what I can't remember whose it was, but it is. It is. You know what I'm talking about? The carpet mm. pattern in The Shining. Kubrick's The Shining. Yes, yeah, I, I have uh, a uh, ink pen with that uh, that I that I use to grade papers. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's there. I'll, I'll have to go back and look and see if I can capture a screenshot or something and put it with the podcast. But maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, but, but now that I say that, do you see any Kubrick influence in this film at all? What do you think? Certainly the, that question, that certainly question the comes pacing, from nowhere. But. Certainly the <laughs> pacing feels very Kubrick-like. The, uh, 
the the cinematography the way he moves his camera around uh yeah i think very much of uh one of the things that jumped out at me that you know this is not really we don't normally talk about this kind of stuff but there's this wonderful scene when they first get to a wonderful shot when they first get to sweden the the car is traveling and the camera just does a loop to loop like they're on a roller coaster but so the car ends up upside down and the road's on top of the screen and it's it's wonderful and it's it's sort of pre any of the hallucinatory stuff so it's it's just this playful cinematography uh that you know lets us know that we've entered the world that is topsy-turvy like it's real on the nose but it's still just in some way beautiful uh, I, I just I get, we talked about when we got into this film i got into it like you said with the, the death of the sister and the parents full on but uh, that scene just sold me on the how attentive Aster was going to be to, to camera work and, and how the, the, the shots were framed and stuff. And, and it, it had me looking for that stuff for the rest of the movie. And that feels like Kubrick to me as a guy who just got through teaching uh, Clockwork Orange and some just brilliant cinematography decisions that were made in that. Well, I'm, I think about Clockwork Orange, and then, of, of course, you can't help but think of The Shining. But so many times in Kubrick's film, he does this slow pullback of the camera, very intentional, very beautiful, where you, you continue to see more and more of what's ha- happening in the scene as he's slowly pulling back. He does this with Clockwork Orange when I think all of the guys are sitting. It's the opening down. scene in the milk bar, right? Yeah. And, um, and uh, he does this. I just feel like that slow, steady, intentional camera, um, you, you just see that throughout. But I've got to, I really think, I've got to go find that bedroom scene so we can see uh, see whether or not you think that that pattern was uh, looks like the carpet. Anyway, let's talk about the ending, and uh, we'll close this thing up. Uh, Danny has an opportunity to select. Uh, I, I can't remember the math, how many people Scott ended up needing to be sacrificed, like eight or nine people or something. It was nine. Do you remember? It was nine. And she has to choose... Uh, so two people, well, just tell, just remind us, two of them have to volunteer or something, and she gets to choose one. Um, uh, yeah, it was something like that. So there were two outsiders um, and then two volunteers from the community. I, I, I can't remember now. But, there, yeah, I, I remember it was nine, and it included some of these people that had been recruited. So the two Londoners and the, and the two friends of Danny and, and Christians. And then there was um, maybe two more volunteers or something like that. But it was it added up to nine, except, for, well, it added up to eight. And then the last person was to be chosen by Danny. And they gave her sort of a, it looked like a, you know, a lottery or bingo kind of thing where they rolled these balls in a barrel and pulled one out and it had some kind of rune mark on it. So there was one person from the community or her boyfriend Christian, who's now in some kind of a, a chemically induced paralysis, sitting in a wheelchair, and that's going to be the ninth person that gets burned alive or burned up inside this this temple sort of structure. Yeah, you know, picking the rune piece like the lottery or whatever that confused me for a moment because I just assumed that that person was definitely going to die. But isn't it that? that was a person who potentially was going to die. Like yeah. She, I, she had to choose between, between that guy and somebody in Christian, right? Correct. So 
Christian was he was designated as one of the one of the potential finalists <laughs> because he was um, he contributed new blood. In other words, he's the one that mated or had sex with Maya, one of their uh, nubile young ladies, um, maidens. They had sort of ritual sex, and that brought new blood into a community that could otherwise become inbred too much. Um, you know, cousins mating with cousins, and so they they need right. they need outsiders, and he was that, and because he was that, he was one of the finalists, and then the lottery ball selected one of the community members of the cult members, and so there were two people, and Danny chose which one, and she chose Christian, and so we get to watch this scene where Christian now inside a bear skin. <laughs> Uh, is taken inside this house that we've seen the whole time, this kind of triangular uh, house we've not seen inside of it until now, kind of a very mysterious place that they really weren't supposed to get near. But now Christian is taken inside this along with the other folks. Um, seems like they gave them uh, a little bit of some medicine to help ease the pain, mm -hmm. which apparently didn't help too much because one of the guys is screaming his head off uh, <laughs> once the place is, is put on fire and he goes up in flames and as he's screaming again the villagers are, are mourning with him and yelling and screaming and wailing um, and yeah the thing goes up in flames um, a burnt offering I mean obviously this has uh, all kinds of historical um, connections with basically every religion that's ever existed um, an offering that goes up in flames for uh, either the atonement of sin or to uh, rid a place of evil and to make new beginnings and Danny as we've already mentioned has somewhat of a peaceful but at first she's she's really horrified mm -hmm. isn't she mm -hmm. yes. so it, she, her expression goes from horror to kind of a peaceful expression and then uh, the, the movie comes to an end so uh, your guys thoughts comments um, remarks about kind of that ending and how we brought the whole thing together uh what did it do for you were you daddy were you pleased with the ending did it did it satisfy you or do you think it was a fitting conclusion to uh, the rest of the film absolutely i i do once again though i'm gonna uh, defer to you guys for uh, what we're supposed to walk away from this with uh, i certainly didn't walk away empty uh, but i did walk away kind of just wondering uh, what was the message there and i Films don't have to have a message or whatever, but where were we supposed to be left? Uh, I I was left with just a sense that that was a almost perfect way to wrap that film up. I don't know what's going on in Danny's head. I don't know if she's finally found the family that, or she's found a family to replace her family, or she's found that comfort or support that she didn't have in West in the Western world, uh, in this new pagan world. But um, but I just felt that it it worked. How about you, Scott? What What did you see? Yeah, I, I thought the ending was amazing. Um, what I What I thought when when I saw Danny, she, yes, she was very upset and shocked, and 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 her 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 she was frowning. But it that frown gradually turned into a what I thought was a very peaceful looking, almost blissful smile, and. Throughout the whole movie, Danny is, you see grief in her face. There's just grief and loneliness in her face. 
And I, I, I think she, whatever it was, it just sort of dissipated at that moment. So that this whole ritual, this whole nine, it was a nine day ritual. Um, it just sort of fed her internally, I felt. And that that was, um, she found her, her home or her, her community. Yeah, I, I certainly took it as she's not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, she's going to stay right there, and uh, she's become one with uh, the people that she now feels understands her and uh, feels her and uh, relates to her. And You know, the killing of, of Christian um, was just kind of that final nail in the coffin, mm -hmm. you know, the purging everything else that, was ugly to her and reminiscent of the pain that she had dealt with for so long. All that's gone now. And I think is it is fitting, right, that we were at a, at a period, somebody already mentioned this, that there's 24-hour sunshine, basically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she could sing the song, My Future is So Bright I Have to Wear Shades, right? <laughs> like all of, that, all of that evil has been burned up, and all I've got is a lot of sunshine now in front of me so watch they're not to smile about you know what what's the deal with the bear i mean do we even want to you know ask the obvious question why is he in a bear uh carcass do we know is there is that does that have any pagan tie-ins that i'm just not aware of or i got ideas? nothing i mean uh, you know i don't i don't know if there's any specific significance to the animal and, and wearing the carcass and getting burned up inside. I didn't catch anything particular. I mean, it was grisly. <laughs> I, I didn't mean that as a pun. It was, it was gruesome, <laughs> but, uh, um, but it, um, but I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know if that meant something or could have meant something. I'm not sure that it did, and I think he almost tips his hand that he doesn't have any meaning for it at all because remember when they they first show up to the village and they walk by, and one of them is kind of freaked out that there's a bear in a cage, and whoever is showing, giving the tour, he's like, that's a bear. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's, it's what, a bear. One of, one of the Americans says, aren't we going to mention the bear? Is no one going to mention the bear? Um, yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's a bear. Um, I think bears are symbolically you know pretty present in like viking nordic uh mythology and uh, uh you know, cultural history uh, and that's probably just a if you're going to have a an animal as part of the ritual bears make sense in sweden hmm. uh, yeah uh, because of the because of the history i don't know that they have any i don't know anything about the culture to know the significance of it uh, i have a question for you guys as we're ending wrapping this up um I don't know if we asked this question about hereditary or not. Well, I mean, eventually, I, I, I think we did, or I've talked to you all about it outside. Um, is this film supernatural? Is there supernatural horror here? And I've got a couple of places where I, wanna, I think it is. Uh, first of all, they know that the maiden is pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, they know that they, they at least think they know that the ritual was successful and she's been impregnated. Right? And if you look at all that imagery of, you know, the foreshadowing that we talked about, I think you could argue that Danny was fated to be this May Queen, that, that this is just a story of, of a, it's almost a Disney story of a princess coming into her own. 
she already she had bear imagery in her house already in her apartment already of she knows or or it's been written yeah that you know it's almost a mythological concept that she is the chosen one she just has to get there somehow so when she's smiling at the end it's because you know she's where she's supposed to be and I think another indication that might be true is that when she does the mushrooms, the grass grows out of her hand, right? The, mm-hmm. She, she seems to be the, it's like the, the, uh, the earth is picking her, right? The, the, the world is saying you are part of us there. And then she's like actually growing in with the tree. And, you know, that's a, a big part of the film. The cult is that they're one with nature, but she seems to be really one with nature. And she can watch the flowers grow and the plants grow, and she sort of becomes hyper aware of the natural world around her. I don't know. What do you think? Is it? Is there actually anything supernatural here, or is this just a normal cult horror story? I think I would have originally, when you first asked that question, Danny, I I would have answered no. There's no supernatural here. I think this is, you know, it's it's just an example of folk horror, but there's no actual supernatural thing going on but you convince me just in your explanation or your you know argument for that case yeah i can totally see that now that she was supposed to because she was chosen as the may queen because they did a maypole dance all the girls did a maypole dance and having taken some kind of uh, herbal drink that had hallucinogenic or psychedelic properties and they were dropping they were um, getting dizzy or they were vomiting and they were collapsing but she's the last one it seemed like too much of a coincidence that she would be the only one who could survive this and there was a point too in their dancing when she was start she started to speak swedish and she was amazed because she'd never learned swedish and you know there was that yeah there was a moment where she was talking to this other girl as they were dancing and she was talking to her in Swedish, and the girl said, "I, you know, we're talking in Swedish. Do you know that? We're not speaking in English." And she, it was funny because Danny was like, "No, I didn't know I could speak Swedish. I don't know how this is happening." So that just occurred to me just this moment. So, the, yeah, and I, I take back my question because I'm obviously right. <laughs> yes, I, I you are about that entirely. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, there's something um, beyond the, you know, what the eye can see going on here. I think a lot about subgenre because, you know, it's one of the ways I divide up my horror classes, you know, how do we categorize these things and what are the tropes and, you know, the traits of the different subgenres of horror. Uh, so I was just wondering, where do I put Midsummer? I put it in a cult horror, I had a cult horror section this last time, and that's probably where it'll stay if I keep that section. But it does have supernatural elements, which always makes me happy. I like horror to have supernatural element is something I'm attracted to in my viewings and readings. Wasn't there a, I mean, I, I thought of it as just sort of folk horror, you know, kind of like the wicker man or, you know, there have been other, there's, um, there's one, not that long, a few years ago called Wakewood, you know, the, and there's a book, Thomas Tyron's um, harvest home. So there is sort of a subgenre of these, um, I don't know. But sort of, yeah, neo-pagan, but they're tied to the earth and the cycles of the seasons and the harvest right. and the crops. So that is a subgenre, and that's where I put it in my mind. Yeah, that's where I that's where I put it when I taught it this time, and that's where I would obviously it would stay because it has all those elements. But uh, but it does have those films 
tend to not have a lot of supernatural elements, if any at all. Um, and this one, I think, maybe has more. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'd be worth it'll be worth me talking about it anyway. Not maybe not here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the uh, I just uh, that ending is uh, I don't know. It, it just the more we talk about it, the more perfect it seems to me. I, uh, very, I actually want to go and finish. I watched half of it today, and I'm probably after this podcast going to finish it and you know maybe go watch Hereditary just uh, for fun. <laughs> All right, guys. Anything else you want to say or ask or any final comments before we close it out? Scott, I, I will say this, uh, and I don't say it often as a guy who has to uh, edit a lot of people's dissertations. As you know, being the the guy who does that on campus, uh, I really want to read your dissertation. That sounds <laughs> absolutely fascinating, and um, I, I, I mean that sincerely. That I, I I would like to see a copy of it when you're when you've got closer to the finished product. You got it when if and when <laughs> I mean when it happens. That's I'll I'll happily share. Well, guys, thanks for uh, being with us. Uh, we appreciate you listening. This was a long podcast. We hope you've hung in there with us. Midsummer, uh, definitely a movie you should check out. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. If you've been listening, if you have different opinions, shoot us an email, leave us a comment, and we'll definitely get back to you on that. Danny and Scott, appreciate the great feedback as always. And we'll see you next time on Body Count. Have a great night.